We'll open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you've been with us, you know we're in the book of Philippians. And this morning I've been looking for a place to preach this message. And uh, returning from break is a perfect opportunity where, before we, we dive back in. Now, if you paid any attention during the scripture reading, you'll realize two things. One... This passage is very familiar to you, and so anytime you have a familiar passage, you have to fight against familiarity breeding contempt. Oh yeah, yeah I've heard that, I know what that says. The second thing that you'll, you'll note is it's, it's long compared to what we, we normally do. We're normally covering uh, a couple, two or three verses and, and looking at them expositionally. We'll look at this expositionally, but it'll be It'll be a, a broader brush. But the reason I want to share it with you is I think it's a message that will encourage your hearts, especially as you navigate the, the uncertainty of the, uh, of the times. Uh, it's, it's no secret that 2020 has not been the best of years. Would everyone agree with that? There's, there's COVID. There's the incessant turmoil in, in politics. There's talk of racism, there's TV screens full of riots, there's a great economy, there's a horrible economy, there's all kinds of, of, of upheaval. If you're in the stock market, you, it's been more like a seesaw than, than anything else. And then there's also this, this little small election coming up, which is on everybody's mind or should be. All of that being laid on the backdrop of a culture that calls good evil and evil good. I don't know if you realized it, but, but this past summer marked the five-year anniversary since the Supreme Court Obergefell decision that legalized homosexual unions in our country. It was five years ago. Forty-seven years after Roe v. Wade, when murder was, was legalized. And then there are all the, the lockdowns and the, the mask mandates Attempts to rewrite educational curriculum to teach children that our country was founded inherently evil. Uh, the state of California just passed a, a law this past week that requires mandatory diversity representation on private corporate board of directors. So a privately owned company, the state now mandates who will be on the board of directors. First time that's, that's ever happened. It's happened other places, like in, in South Africa. It's the first time it's, it's happened here. That law requires publicly held corporations headquarters in California to include at least, to begin with, one board member who self-identifies as black, African-American, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, Pacific Islander, Native American, Native Hawaiian, or Alaskan Native, or as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender, or you're not able to operate in the state of California. And then there's the, the capitulations within the church that's been going on for, for, for decades. And, and I could go on, but you understand the times that you're, that you're living in. You, you, you feel them. And, and when you try to digest all of that, especially all of that at, at, at once, even a believer can get knocked off center and without resetting their, their foot, uh, footing. You, you look around and you see things going haywire and, and it's easy to get overwhelmed and not know what to do or even get fearful. 
The late Adrian Rogers said a Christian should navigate life with a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other. And I would say that the key to determining whether you have peace or travail is dependent upon the order in which you look at them. You look at the the newspaper first and then the Bible, you're not going to have a lot of peace. But if you reverse that, and you look at the Bible and then the newspaper, or the news app, or whatever it is, then, then you can have peace. Because cable TV tells us that it's hopeless. They do that in order to drive viewership, the... World leaders say, let me guide you. The political candidates say, if you just trust and elect them, then they'll fix it all. And then whenever they don't fix it all, the next one comes along and says, just elect me, and I'll fix it all. And, but what, what do followers of Jesus Christ do in times like this? Are these different times? Are these times that, that are unprecedented, like you hear uh, on a regular basis? When the contemporary world looks like it's lost its mind, a believer must remember there's another mind that we can go to. That's God's mind. And the only place that you'll find that is in His unchanging Word. That's where you'll find the answers. And that's where we'll go this morning. That's where I want to help you with. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I want to show you what God says about the very days in which we're, we're living in. And you're going to find that these are not unique times as... As you hear, there are unique things about them, but in general, they're not unique times. One of my favorite quotes about God's faithfulness, uh, faithfulness to Israel in particular, was attributed to a controversial Israeli general, Moshe Dayan, who, who was asked how Israel could defeat all of the Arab armies that, that came against them in the Six-Day War. And his answer was simply this. The God who was, is, and the God who did, does. He said that's how it happens. And the Bible declares the exact same reality to us if we'll look to it. The God who did things in the past is still doing things today. And the Bible unfolds as we see God's plan unfold. And these very days that we're living in are spoken about in Scripture. And the Bible methodically and resolutely marches from the fall in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 to the cross of Calvary, and from Calvary to the end of the, uh, the, the age. In the period between Christ's ascension and when He comes for His church, it's called the, the last days that Paul's talking about here in, in, in 2 Timothy. And those are the times that we're living in now. Understand when you hear the term, the last days, what immediately comes to your mind is Armageddon and Revelation. That's the end of the the last days. The period of time from from when those individuals were standing, looking into heaven, and the angel says, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing? The same Jesus is coming again. From the time in which they watched Him go up until He comes again, that entire period is called, according to Scripture, the, the latter days. Those are the times that we're living in right now. And Scripture tells us what those days will will be like. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 is a, is a portrait of them. I mean, it, it has two parts. In verses 1 through 9 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, describes the days that we're living in and what people will be like. And then in verses 10 through 17, which, uh, which contains those wonderful passages about the inspiration of Scripture, verses 10 through 17 declares to us what that demands of us as believers, followers of Jesus Christ. 
And so between the first and second coming of Christ, there are perilous times filled with poisonous men that will demand the people of God look to the Word of God and not flinch. That's a good summary of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Because if you, if you miss God's diagnosis of the days, you're going to misdiagnose the problems that we, that we face. And if you do that, you're going to be tempted to respond to the, to the world around you, either emotionally or socially or racially or whatever else it is. And what you have to do as a believer is respond biblically. And the solution is not throw up your hands or take up arms. It's, it's to go to God's Word and navigate exactly the way that it tells us to here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And because the entire chapter is going to give us four biblical instructions for perilous times or difficult days. Verse 1, God declares these times to us. He doesn't keep us guessing. He tells us exactly what the way times are going to be. Then God describes it will be filled with poisonous men and women. But in them God directs the people of God in verses 10 through 13, and He delivers them by the Word of God in verses 14 through, through 17. As always, if you didn't get those, you'll get them one at a time. Let's look at the first biblical instruction. It comes from God's declaration about uh, perilous times. Look, if you would, at verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. I know that is a familiar passage, but God wants you to hear it again, and He wants you to pay attention to it today. And this verse contains a, contains a warning about the time. It describes the period in view, and, and then it gives a depiction. What will these times be like? And Paul begins with a warning or a declaration about the very days that, that we live in. He says, realize this. Be assured of, of this. God says, don't be surprised by what's taking place during our, our time. Be assured they're coming. This is not a maybe so. This is an assuredly so. Now think about this. Paul is writing to Timothy and he gives... This, this warning to, to him in Ephesus, and it carries all the way until Jesus Christ returns for, for his church. And so when you turn on the TV, something that Timothy couldn't do, like you did last night, and you see the riots in Seattle or the CNN's death ticker, God says, don't fear as if some strange thing is, is taking place. Know these things are, are going to happen and know that your task is to be faithful and not fearful when they do. God says, trust and don't twist in the wind of the events. Be like the old aunt that Moody told about who had a young Scottish university student rooming with her one day the student came home and, and said to her, uh, Auntie, you know uh, that verse in Hebrews that says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee? Well, I found out today that there are five negatives in that verse in the Greek, and it reads like this, I will never, 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 never leave thee. And the old aunt said, Oh, laddie, one of them is good enough for me. <laughs> because he said, I will never leave thee or forsake thee. We may boldly say, I will not fear it's a warning in the Bible that these are the times that, that are coming. And the warning is not to make us fatalistic or fearful. It, it's, to, it's to give us boldness and, and faith. God doesn't tell you that these times are coming so you'll sit on your hands and say, well, whatever will, will be, will be. It's so that when they come, you'll keep working for the Lord and say, this is not surprising. My God's already told me all about this. And it's to remind you that He rules over all of these things that, that are coming. Al Mohler said when the Supreme Court legalized homosexual unions, in one sense everything changed, 
And in another sense, nothing changed. Everything changed that, that as a nation we have written sin into our nation's laws and invited the judgment of God on our country in a way that we, we never have before. In, an, in a way that we never have before, we've set the state against the church, different from, from any other time since our founding. But in another sense, nothing changed. God's Word didn't change. Christ is still the sin-conquering Savior who, who, who came to save to the uttermost. He's coming in clouds of glory one day very soon. No human court has the authority to change God's law or affects heaven's judgment. And that, that verdict does absolutely nothing to the God's ordained reality of marriage. And so in that situation or in our current situation or whatever comes before Jesus comes, this Sunday like the last and this year like, like the next, Christians will still follow Christ. He's still reigning in heaven and we'll still walk by faith in, in His unchanging word for direction. In that word says everything that you see around you is exactly what, what will mark the days between the first and second coming of Christ. Look if you would again at verse 1. He says, but realize this, there's the, there's the reminder, the warning, that in the last days, difficult times will, will come. The period of time, he describes, is the last days. Now, I want to go a little bit further than what I've already told you about that. This is a reference that Paul uses numerous times to describe that that, that, that period, literally the end times. Now again, I know you think Revelation and Armageddon and you get images of John Hagee doing his little diagrams or whatever else that he does. But, and, and those things will come. Revelation will happen at, at the very end of the, the latter days. But it's a long period of unknown length. What did the disciples want to know whenever Jesus is taken up into heaven? He, they want to know, is now the time for the kingdom? I mean, you died, you rose. I mean, is the kingdom coming now, a period of time now? No. Jesus says, no. You're going to be my witnesses. It's not for you to know how long this period is going to last. Your task is to be my witnesses, however long this period lasts. And at the end of that period, when Christ returns, there will come all of the things that are, that are, that are written in the book of, of Revelation, but we don't have any idea how, how long that that period is, and it builds in deterioration until we, 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 we get there as sin multiplies. Acts chapter 2 defines when the latter days begin as a period started at the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It continues until the coming of Christ. Acts chapter 2, it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my Spirit on, on all mankind. That was quoted from Joel in the Old Testament during the sermon in Pentecost. This is when it's going to happen. And the Holy Spirit comes in this unique way, empowering in, in the unique, unique way. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. This is nothing to do with Revelation. But in these last days, between the first and second coming of Christ, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed, the heir of all things, through whom He also created the, the world. This is not the period of, of Israel, this is not the gathering of the, of the nation that will come. This is the, 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 the time, those are the times before Christ, at the coming of Christ. God now speaks through, through His Son. It just simply means that they're the last days of God's redemptive calendar. Days that are not the beginning days when the Messiah's people Israel was being formed. Days that are not the time of the bridegroom that Jesus talked about but days in which the bridegroom goes to prepare for his coming to take his bride out of the world, and the days that the bride, the church, is being prepared 
They are days in which nothing else needs to be completed before He returns. And, and you need to be reminded by those words. I mean, you realize in the, the last days, and you automatically think bad and think negative, and, and, and there's a negative part to that. It's going to get worse, but, but there also should be a victory song that rises in your heart. The days in which we minister in should excite you. Do you understand that these are not dour times or times to feel depressed or, or, or fearful? They're triumphant ones. We're one second away from the, from the trumpet blast, from the coming of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that needs to be done. We're not looking for Christ to come. He's already come. He rose from the dead. And when He comes, He'll split the sky and call us to Himself. And we'll forever be with Him. And realizing that, is what would change your anxiety into joy when you see all the craziness on the news. You're living one step away from living in the very presence of the King. And while that's an exciting future, these days are called difficult or perilous. Look at verse 1 again. He gives the description of the days. They're difficult or grievous. But realize this. Be aware of this. In this period of time between the first and second coming of Christ, times will be difficult. I mean, you realize that where he talks about these are unprecedented times, it's actually the times when it's calm that, that are actually unprecedented between the first and second coming of Christ. The term for difficult or perilous here is used one other time in Matthew 8.28, describing the demoniac of the Gadarenes, which is translated, they're violent. These are violent times. Violence is done to the truth, to the church, to mankind. Uh, Plutarch, the Greek writer, used the term to describe an ugly infection and a dangerous wound. And this, is a, this is an honest and clear and, and compelling evaluation of what life under the sun will be like between the first and second coming of Christ. And so while the thought of Christ's coming lifts our soul, we must not be naive about the world that, that we live in and, and its opposition. We must not lay down and, and just leave it until He, he comes. This, I mean, we sing the song, This is my Father's world. We ought to act like it. Don't fall into the trap that, 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 they're, you know, that, that Christianity is just a, a one idea in a marketplace of ideas, that there are multiple gods. That I mean, God is the Creator. You follow Him alone. This is His world. He's the one who will redeem it one day. I see a lot of social media stuff uh, whenever I look at it. I hear things like, Let, let's not wage a culture war, let's preach the gospel. And, I mean, I get it. I understand you know, what they mean. Uh, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Um, you know, that's also incredibly naive. You won't fix the root issue through social change or political change or, or anything else, but we're already in a culture war. I mean, mankind declared war on God in the garden, and the, the culture declared war on Jesus Christ and His followers 2,000 years ago. I mean, that's been going on. That's not new. That's not a Republican-Democrat thing or a right-and-left thing. And you have to realize that. Denny Burke, quoting uh, David French, wrote, among evangelicals, there is a naive belief that if only we were winsome enough, kind enough, and compassionate enough, the culture would welcome us with open arms. Christians who have not suffered for their faith often romanticize persecution. 
They imagine themselves willing to lose their jobs, their liberty, or, or even their lives for standing up for the gospel. And yet, when the moment comes, at least in the United States, they often find that, they're, that they simply cannot abide being called hateful or bigoted. The tendency is to say, no, you don't understand. I'm not like those people. And he said, thus, at the end of the day, the church that descends from the apostles who withstood beatings finds itself unable to withstand tweetings. Social scorn is worse than the lash. He said, here's the bottom line. No amount of niceness. Social justice, advocating, human trafficking, opposition, all horrible as it is, listening to the right bands or wearing the right clothes or poverty relief or reading N.T. Wright or whatever cool Christian stuff you can align with will remove the reproach of Christ from you if you choose to follow His teaching. It, it's, it's just there. You're on a fool's errand if, if you're trying to do that. And if you're trying to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for His sake, you'll find it. Better to have Jesus and His reproaches than, than not to have Him at all. You're in a war whether you, you want to be one in or not, and you have to make sure that you stand on the, on the Lord's side. Humbly, compassionately, don't be a jerk, but know where Jesus stands and then stand there. If you're in Him, you're already standing there. And the times are violently hazardous. I mean, think how utterly foolish it is to try to gain acceptance from the world and think unbelievers will ever befriend the church, that you're going to win them without the gospel, just by being nice. Or being nice is going to lead them to, 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 to the gospel whenever the Bible says that my heart before coming to Christ and your heart before Christ, unless God does a work in it, is, is filled with hatred toward Him and toward the light. I mean, only conversion will make that, that type of change. And conversion can only happen when you preach a clear gospel that condemns before it saves. The whole woke stuff is just another derivative of bad ecclesiology and even worse anthropology. It's the next wave of pragmatism. It, it's the outgrowth of the postmodern emerging church movement that denied the clarity and authority of Scripture, which is a derivative of the seeker-sensitive movement. That denied depravity, which is a derivative of the positive thinking movement with Norman Vincent Peale, which is a derivative of the social gospel, WWJD movement, which is a derivative ultimately of Charles Finney's free will man-centered theology, which is a derivative of Pelagius, which is a derivative of the devil. And none of it's biblical. No one knew what would come after the postmodern church movement. And now you know. It's the next form of pragmatism trying to shoehorn the gospel into a culture gone mad. And you can't follow the culture because it's filled with the kind of people that you once were before you came to Christ. As Clay reminded us, God declares poisonous men. Now, as painful as you find this list in verses 2 through through 5, think about the fact that this is inspired scripture and Paul, his last letter that he's writing to Timothy before he dies, he puts this big long list there to Timothy to remind him of what the culture is, is going to be and the culture already is. I mean, Timothy's probably like us going, well, I know the culture. I live in it. I was this. So why does God put this here and belabor it? Notice the, the, how it starts. Look if you would at verse 2. It says, for, 
Men will be lovers of sales. It gives us the reason for these troublesome times. There's going to be part of them. They'll come because men will be, and then he gives this long staccato list where God describes poisonous people living in our day. And he describes their characteristics in verses 2 through 5. That's the, the long list part that we won't go through line by line. There's the deception, verses 6 and 7. They're among those who enter into households. And then there's their condemnation, the description of Janus and Jambres in verses 8 through 9. It starts with their characteristics summarized. He says they love themselves, just like you did before Christ. They're indifferent toward others, just like you were before you came to Christ. And they hate God, just like you did before you, you came to Christ. Paul begins with one word, philatos, uh, where we get Philadelphia and, and uh, atos, self. People of this age, in this age, meaning non-Christians, people that haven't been transformed by the gospel of grace, love themselves. And if you have social media, I don't even need to comment on that one, right? They live for themselves. They, and you can see that in, in how they behave. It says that they're, they're boasters, they're proud, they're, they're blasphemers. They love themselves, their, their God is the one they see in the mirror, they love money. They amass things to consume on their own desires. They're driven for material gain and personal ease. Paul says they're boasters, proud, blasphemers. They boast of their accomplishments. They're lifted up because of them, and then they disregard the one who, who made them and gave them the gifts, the ability to do it. So they blaspheme God with their lives through being unthankful. Doesn't that describe our world? It describes Timothy's too. And they're indifferent toward, toward, toward others. I mean, in this list, he starts with the most natural relationship known to, to mankind when, when he talks about parents. They're disobedient to parents. Isn't that interesting to be put in this list in the, in the latter days? I mean, have children... Has there ever been a time when children weren't disobedient to their parents? I mean, God was the, the, the father or the parent of Adam and Eve and they disobeyed in the garden? But here is a part of what it looks like to be an unsafe person, what comes from your heart, unless God transforms it and, and he, he changes it. Even the most natural and basic structure, the point is, even the most natural and basic structure which God has built into creation is disregarded. They're indifferent to that. I mean, we don't have a lot of time to go into this, but you remember when we, we looked at uh, Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is this picture of what it's like, what life is like outside the garden. And it's vanity and vexation, but as we walk through Ecclesiastes, we saw how God, even though we live in a cursed world, a fallen world, a world that can't be, can't be made straight no matter how hard we try because of that curse, that even though that's the case, God's built into that blessings and things that we would call common grace that believers and unbelievers are able to utilize. Well, some of that common grace, God's built in structures or four pillars, if you will, that are, that are built into life that, that, that help produce a stable society. These things don't save anyone, they don't convert anyone, but, but they help society function outside of, of the garden. There are four of them. There's the, the law written on everybody's heart and then the conscience that, 
that either accuses or excuses, that everyone knows there's a, there's a right and wrong, no matter where you go. I mean, that's, that's embedded in the human heart. It's part of creation. And then everybody has a conscience. That's number one. Then beyond that, God, God's created family and, and authority structures within the family and discipline. You, 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 get a, you get a spanking or you get time out whenever you do the wrong thing. When you disobey mom and dad, that's part of structure. Believers and unbelievers function by, by that. Then the third one is governing authorities, Romans 13, the passage that everybody appeals to, you know, even right now, submit to the, to the governing authorities. God's ordained governing authority. And he says that they bear the, they bear the sword. There's punishment if you disobey. That, that, that doesn't save people. Laws don't save people, but it does restrain sin and, and allows things to, to function. And the final thing that, that God's established for a stable society is the church and its purity. Paul told Timothy, it's the pillar and ground of truth. It declares what, what God has said, what's right and, and what's wrong. And the culture from the time of, of the fall and continuing to the time of Jesus until he returns attacks every one of those. It's attacked the truth, uh, telling people there's no such thing as, as right and, and, and wrong. It, it's attacked the conscience uh, by removing shame. I mean, the worst thing in our society is to tell somebody that something shameful, you might damage their self-esteem. It's attacked the family and any use of punishment, a marital order, a parental authority, child discipline. There's attempts even now to remove authority from society, no longer prosecuting crimes and, and things like that. It's hostile. The culture's hostile to Christ. And if it removes the guardrails in the heart and the governance in the family, the, the final barrier is, is the external authorities. And if they're gone, you have nothing left to restrain sin. Just, just watch what happens whenever there's, there's no police around. People go crazy. Where does that come from? It comes from within their hearts. It will go out in your heart if there's nothing to restrain yourself. And MacArthur said that you should not be surprised by those, but, but who the culture is coming after next on the list. It's the church. <laughs> They're unthankful, unholy in this list. They don't give thanks because they're proud and they think that they've accomplished it themselves. And that leads to an unholy life. Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers. The list is just goes on and, and, and on and on. And, and I find whenever I read this, I think, Oh, Paul, couldn't you just said this in like one verse? No. <laughs> I want to tell you how bad the culture is. More importantly, I want to tell you how bad you were before you came to Jesus Christ. When wrong, they show no mercy. They receive none. They assassinate the character of others. They're without self-control. Or they're brutal. They show no restraint. They're haters of God. The last part of this list at, at verse 5 is the summary statement. They despise good and traitors and, and headstrong. Spurgeon said, If a man has lived in the dark all of his life, do you wonder that the light makes his eyes ache and therefore he hates it? You ever had somebody come in your, in, in your room in the middle of the, uh, of the night, 4 o'clock in the morning, and you got to get up and, and you go to work, and your mom's tried to get you up and you didn't get up? So what do they do? They come in, flip the light on. says so that's the way that your unbelieving heart is before Christ. You hate the light. Your deeds are evil, John says. So when you see the light, when you hear the light, it, it, it repels you. It's repulsive to you. You don't like it. That's why you don't come to church whenever you're in sin. Or otherwise, you want to get as far away from it as possible. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the summary statement. 
your unsaved heart and the unsaved man worships the God of self and therefore bows to his own altar, not the true creator. They may hold a form of godliness, but they're empty shells. Verse 5, holding a form of godliness, although they've denied its power, avoid such men. They're, they have no power. They're only puff. You ever played the blow up the juice box game and give it back to your brother or sister? You drink the juice box, and then you blow it back up, and you know, here, you want a drink? Or the stick of chewing gum where you put the wrapper back in, and then you offer somebody the gum and they take it? That's what these people are. Religious people out without Christ. They have a wrapper but no gum. They're, they're full of air. There's a lot of churches like that. The Bible says, from such people turn away because they deceive. That's what it says. Verse 5, avoid such men. For this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with with sins. How's that for a politically correct verse? (laughs) It begins with a warning. This is not a condemnation on a gender. The focus here is their character of these women. I'm not saying women in general are bad, but, but unbelieving ones, their character. He says, turn away from people like this. Don't run with them, run from them, because they have a deceptive influence. That's the whole idea here. From among these, in verse 6, who enter into households and, and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins and led on by various impulses. They, they creep into to households. They have a deceptive influence. They don't knock on the door and say, I'm here to, to ruin your, your life. While their characteristics should be clearly seen, the, the world's teachings are often camouflaged. And a person who listens is described here as gullible, undiscerning, unable to, to tell that, that there's poison laced in the, the cupcake. They're defiled in conscience, meaning they're loaded down with sins, they're, they're uncontrolled, they're, they're led by lust. I mean, this is all about the character of the individuals and and. and and if you're like that, you're going to be led astray, easily led astray. This describes someone who's weak in truth and weak in virtue. Godless women are their first targets, just like in the garden. The world has a seductive influence. They make captives, it says, those who listen to their ways. And you invite them into your heads when you, they take you captive by empty philosophies. Don't let the description be, be, be you. Be discerning, forgiven, free, and, and led by Christ because they lead nowhere. Look at verse 7. Always learning and never able to, to land, never able to come to the knowledge of the, of the truth. And just so you women don't feel singled out, he, he starts talking about men in verse 8. Just as uh, Jannies and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth. Men of a depraved mind, rejected in regard to the, to the faith. Always learning and never able to, to come to the destination of truth, which is Christ and His forgiveness. Hey, listen, Satan doesn't care if you're in the truth, around the truth, you sit on a church group, pew, you've memorized it, just as long as you don't trust in the truth and apply it. Finally notice this condemnation. In verse 8, we're going to exhale in a minute. God now gives a biblical example of the magicians of Pharaoh who opposed Moses. 
the representative of God. He identifies two of them, Janus and Jambres here. They're Old Testament symbols of men who resist God's truth but are condemned, like the ungodly men of today who oppose the truth, like you were condemned before you came to Christ. Look at how he describes their fall in, in verse 8. They're, they're corrupted in mind and disqualified. So these men also opposed the truth. Men of a depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. Depraved mind, it means a continuous, unalterable condition. These men are reprobates. God no longer strives with them because they pursued their opposition so long that He's turned them over to their own desires. Listen, I've witnessed to people like that who are past feeling the conviction of God. I pleaded with them to come to Christ, but, but their hearts had no desire to, to come to Him, and, and some have since perished in their sin. If you hear the truth over and over, and yet you remain in sin, and thereby reject it, you should take heed of, of, of this verse. Because every time you reject the truth, every time you're subjected to the light, every time you hear the truth, to the extent that you reject it and you don't follow it, it lays a callous coating over your heart and makes you harder and harder and harder and it's imperceptible. And one day you just wake up unable to hear or feel God at all. And Paul says that people like that can come to the place where they reject the truth over and over and because of that... They've been rejected by God in regards to the faith. That's what the word disqualified means. It was used for metals that did not pass the test of purity and was discarded. It describes a counterfeit. He says they'll, they'll not get far. They're exposed in the process. They resist and they're disapproved and then they ultimately fail. Their folly will be evident to all. But look at verse 10. Watch this. God has better things for you, brothers. Verse 10. Now you. Notice the, the contrast. Now you followed my teaching and conduct and purpose and faith and patience and love and perseverance and persecutions and sufferings. While these men are bad examples, we also have good ones to follow. And so during perilous times and amongst poisonous men and women... The people of God. There's the people of God, and they're directed by, by the Word of God. That's what verses 10 through 17 tells us. God's not left you alone. He, he directs His people. And while the world is ugly, God has not left us alone. He says, now you, you followed my, my teaching and conduct. There's a standard to follow. And then he also talks about a suffering to endure, but he starts with you. You're not like them. If you're a believer, you're not like the world or the people that God just described. You have a different standard to follow, and Paul gives a list. My, my teaching, my, my conduct, my, my purpose. What do you do? How do you, how do you, how do you navigate the, this, this, the time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ with all of this going on, on around you? Paul says you follow 
truth. You, you follow teaching, sound doctrine, and you follow other people who, who have it in their, their life, their conduct, and, and people that have a single purpose, like we saw in the book of Philippians, that are forgetting which is behind and they're reaching forward. That, that's who you follow. That's what will insulate you and, and protect you. Paul says, my teaching or my doctrine during the perilous times, the people of God must carefully follow the, the true teaching of the Bible. Don't be swayed. Paul says, my way of life, and that way of life has a purpose. It has faith. It's long-suffering. It, it loves. It, it perseveres. It's not easy, but, but it's worthy. And Then he also says that life is a life of opposition. Look, if you would, at verse 12. Again, a very familiar verse. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecutions, afflictions. Just like Paul, we are to endure them all. Why? Well, the same reason that Paul gives. Because our hope's in the Lord. Out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And out of all of these things, the Lord will deliver His people. This is not just Paul's experience, but all of Christ's followers in the days between His first and second coming will suffer, make sure it's for righteousness' sake, but you won't suffer unless you're righteous. If you're a weak-willed or morally corrupt follower, then you'll go along to get along. And The way that the Bible tells us that source that we look to, how God delivers us, finally, is, is through His Word, is all-sufficient source. Look, if you would, at verse 14. You, however, notice there's another contrast here. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from a childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. These are very familiar, but, but there are two parts. The Bible educates unto salvation and equips in sanctification. It educates unto salvation. He tells Timothy to continue in what he learned and what he, what he believed, knowing from who you learned it. These writings that, that gave you the, the old, old story of Jesus and His love. We're going to have a parent-child dedication at the end of the service today. And I'll say before I pray, it doesn't save them. But I'll also say, church, you'll have a part in that, and the parents and the people will have a part of that, and they're doing a good work by doing exactly what this passage says right here. Don't underestimate the truth that's sown in the heart of a person or in a child. I told you a couple of weeks ago about a man who was in his 50s that was an unbeliever. And at 50 years old, he was recalling his mother died, his mother was a believer, prayed for him up until the time she went to heaven and took him to church when she was young. He lived a, a profligate life, his entire life. And at 50, he was recalling songs, hymns that he sang in church when his mother made him go. You don't underestimate the seed that God has sown there. He can bring it back. Don't ever get too old or too learned or too sophisticated that you forget Jesus and His salvation. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. It's not just for children. 
God's not found in the mountaintops of academia or the caverns of philosophy. He lives in the love of Christ who gave Himself for you to wash away your sins. And you need more than that, but if that's all you have, that's a treasure and you should thank God for it. It comes from the Bible. And this same Bible once believed is the only thing you need to, to walk and, and to grow. Secondly, it instructs in sanctification, just a fancy name for growing in Christ. Becoming more and more like Him, which is what Paul taught us about last time in the book of Philippians. Look if you would at verse 16. After salvation, here's sanctification. All Scripture is given, is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in, in righteousness. It's profitable for you as a believer. It leads you to salvation and it sanctifies you. You don't just need the Bible to be saved. You, you need it your whole Christian life. It's profitable. It'll sanctify you. Uh, teaching, it, it systematically instructs. It reproves you. It, it exposes false doctrine and bad thinking. That's a negative rebuke. It, it corrects. It, 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 it makes straight the doctrine that's wrong. It's a positive correction. And it trains in righteousness. It brings us up in the ways of God. And the end result is maturity. Look at you at verse 17. So that, or the result, bringing the Bible into your life and staying under it and using it for all these purposes, the result is that the man or woman of God may be, may be adequate, mature, equipped for every good work. The Bible is totally sufficient to form Christ in us. And it completely equips. And so there it is. In the times between the coming first and second coming of Christ, with all of these types of people around you, you're reminded that they're there and that you were one of those. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. And you're reminded that this is nothing new and that God hasn't left you alone and He's given you a Bible that, that can convert you and, and others and then also grow you and sanctify you if, if you'll use it and you'll stay under it. So... so where does God go from there? Look, look if you would, at chapter 4, verse 1. After all of this, Paul telling Timothy, look at what he, he tells Timothy to do, and you to do. He tells Timothy, after all of this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom. I mean, there's the reference back to the last days, until the coming of Christ. Until you do that. Until Christ comes, until the end of the, the end days, you have a solemn charge to proclaim this word that, that others may hear regardless of the time and regardless of their response. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season when they want to hear it and when they don't. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with, with great patience and instruction, which is the purpose of the word of God, and he's already told us what that will bring. It, it will bring suffering and, and ridicule and different. Difficulty. Listen, the believer, uh, the difference between uh, Christians and unbelievers is not that one is sinless and, and one is sinful. John Piper says the difference is, is we weep over our sins. We don't celebrate them. We don't institutionalize them. We turn to Jesus for forgiveness and help. And we cry to Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The best that this world can do is normalize the fall. They attempt to do that out after the garden. They can't change the fall. The world can't overcome death. It can't eradicate sickness or disease. 
They can't find fellowship with their creator, so they build towers, they make golden calves, they worship idols, they suppress the truth. And in all of that, they're, they're just trying to normalize the fallen world. And church, you cannot remain silent while they do that. You must do what you can to fight against it for their sake, for Christ's glory. You must choose which side you're, you're on or realize the side that you're already on and you must not fear and you must trust God as you do. And so in the firmness of hope, preach the gospel and the judgment that is, that is coming. Tell people that Jesus saves. Spread those tidings all around. And don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man or a nation or a group of people sows, they'll, they'll also reap. And, and remember, the Lord knows how to rescue the, the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the, the day of judgment. One other verse I want to leave you with. You know the passage that you'll hear quoted that today is the day of salvation? Did you know that's a reference to these latter days as well? It means that from the first coming to the second coming of Christ, in these days, um, that's when the good news of the gospel of Christ is proclaimed to all who will repent and believe. So if you're here this morning and you're, you're in this list... You can't say that you're part of the people of God that are looking to, to, to the Word of God or, or you're a Christian that, that has rejected the truth and, and sin has crept into, into your life. The Bible says to you, today is the day of mercy. There, there's coming a day of judgment. Today is the day of mercy for anyone who will turn to Jesus Christ. Everything that needs to be done has already been done. What you have to do is respond to it. Repent and believe. Amen? Let you bow your heads. We're going to sing in response to the Lord in just a minute. I want to pray. Then we're going to do a family dedication. Father, we just thank you for the clarity of your truth. A, a look at a passage like this and I'll come out of the book of Philippians, which is just so full of joy, and, and I'm just smacked in the face of, with, with poisonous people and difficulty. And yet, as I look at that, Lord, my heart is filled with thankfulness because it's exactly what I was. It's what I still am apart from your Spirit. Oh, Father, thank you for your grace. And yet, thank you for the privilege to proclaim your truth and, and to suffer for your name's sake. Oh, Lord, help us to do that with, with clarity and courage, um, but not like the world, not in an ugly or calloused way. Um, the truth is sharp enough. May that cut, not, not our tongues. Um, thank you that you offer salvation full and three to, to anyone who will come. I pray that if there's anybody here this morning in that condition or watching, that they would turn to Jesus and Him alone for salvation. We ask it all in His name. Amen.